It's a wonderful thing to be able to sing the truths of Scripture. I trust that this morning as we work, continue to work our way through Romans 8 here the next few moments together, it's really amazing how many hymns pull from the truths of Romans 8, that wonderful wonderful passage that reminds us of all that we have through Jesus Christ, all that we are looking forward to and can expect. So thankful for Pastor Josh's ministry as he puts together the services each week and does so with great care and great thought about the passage we'll be in together and just bringing us along uh, to arrive uh, right where we need to as we open God's word together and thankful for that new song this morning from Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is the response to the prophecy of the previous chapter 24. I'd encourage you maybe this afternoon to go back and read those two chapters. Um, Just a beautiful, beautiful hymn Pastor Josh wrote based on that. Thank you. It's going to be a great day. We long for that day. We look for it. I would be just fine if the trumpet sounded and the angel shouted in the next two seconds. (laughs) We say with the apostle, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in his providence... In God's sovereignty, we wait. We trust in that. The question was on the hearts and on the minds of the apostles as they gathered in the upper room and as they walked with him those few last days before the ascension and has been in the hearts and minds of believers now for nearly 2,000 years. We say, Lord, how long? The answer comes back just a little longer. Just keep waiting. But we don't wait without hope. We don't wait without confidence. And for that we can be grateful. Last Sunday, we turned our attention to chapter 8 of Romans. We're reminded of five of the amazing gifts. It's not an exhaustive list, but it... uh, hits certainly the highlights, five of the amazing gifts that each believer enjoys through Christ and the active and present ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because with our new life, we have a new walk, a new mind, a new helper, a new obligation, and yes, a new relationship whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I trust that you lived in the reality of that amazing truth this past week. So this morning, as we open God's word together, we look at the next paragraph in Romans 8. It is laid out for us in verses 18 through 25. Follow along with me, please, if you would, as I read these verses for you. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This morning, I want us to consider what Paul is bringing to light here to these first century believers and preserve for us here in this letter to the church at Rome, this present hope that we have of future glory. The present hope of a future glory. We're reminded last week. Chapter 8 flows from chapter 6 and 7, but is also uniquely linked to the end of chapter 5 via that word condemnation. Paul moves the attention of believers from condemnation because of the flesh and sin to justification through Jesus Christ. That's stated plainly in Romans 5.18. Then we get into chapter 8 and verse 17 of chapter, uh, of, of the previous chapter. It ends with a hint, or of chapter 8 ends with this hint of what is coming when he writes that we may also be glorified with him. We, we looked at that last week. As he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. In verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him what we're looking forward to and Paul here new paragraph says for I consider this sounds very much to me like Paul when you live in his epistles and his writings he ever all the writers they they have a a tone to them uh, you can go from from one to the other I mean you know Read through Isaiah, obviously, when we think of Isaiah, there are a few chapters our mind goes to, uh, certainly six, <laughs> uh, a few others. Isaiah was an amazing orator and writer. He didn't just, I don't believe Isaiah didn't just write what we have. I, I believe he spoke a great deal of it. He has a tone. A sound. Yes, they're all inspired. The Holy Spirit is speaking through them. But that flavor, that personality, that, that background still comes through. Kind of like when people hear me or hear my wife talk. They look at us and go, you're not from around here. And he says here, for I consider. You see... It's almost like he, he's been expounding these amazing truths. I mean, they're just flowing out of him because, again, it's inspired. The Holy Spirit's given it to him. 
And he's very likely dictating. We, we pick up on that from different letters, and that was very common at the time in the first century. It was very common for a writer to dictate. We, we have a couple times in his epistles, one in particular, where he says, see what large letters I have written with my own hand. Most commentators believe that in that phrase, what he's doing is he, he himself took up the pen and wrote the closing remarks of that letter to give it validity. So that the people receiving it would know, yeah, this did in fact come from Paul. But many times the, the letters were dictated and, and I can just picture him, he's, he's just going, you know, he's kind of on a roll. And he's going through and he's expounding these the wonderful truths of all that we have through Jesus Christ. And he hits that high point, is, you know, and, and the adoption of sons and we can cry, Abba, Father. And he takes a breath and he says, boy, I could just, I could consider that for a minute and what that means. <laughs> and the guy who's writing it down, if you want your big word for the day, the amanuensis, the guy that's transcribing it, he just keeps going, for I consider change in tone, the apparent introspection. I think it beckons the reader to kind of lean in a little bit, to listen a little closer. What's he about to share? He employs some tools here in this next paragraph. He gives to the creation some human characteristics, call it personification. He's going to give to the creation some things that we only think usually only humans can do. I mean, does creation really groan? But he's going to use that, and it's really a, a, a tool that, that brings things, snaps them into focus for us. It's very effective. Notice also, it's just this thought after thought, and they're all linked together in this chain. There's this conjunction for that, that keeps showing up. And it connects these ideas of present suffering and future glory of a groaning creation as well as groaning Christians. We're all in this together, but this isn't it. There is hope. We live in a world that is looking earnestly for hope. And tragically continues to put it in the wrong things and people constantly. As we sang some of those hymns this morning. That one we just sang, Heavenly Home. I mean, it just, it asks those questions. Gives those, those statements. I mean, how many of us are just so ready to be done with this sin-cursed world. These frail and failing bodies. I mean, certainly Paul was. I mean, I got a good old-fashioned summer cold. Now, that's the least of, of problems, right? But 
I mean, who wants cold in the summertime? It's what it is. There aren't going to be any more summer colds in heaven. Praise the Lord. I know some of you are suffering with, with great difficulty. Maybe some of you even this week got some hard news in recent days. How ready are we to be done with all of this? I said Paul certainly was. I mean we know of his thorn in the flesh, right? He begged God to remove it. We know of the beatings, the shipwrecks, the stoning that he had endured. It must have had a profound impact on his long-term health. Paul knew also that believers across the empire and the Holy Spirit knew believers through the ages were struggling. So he gives this truth for us to consider as well. And so we look at these few sentences together and Paul begins with a great contrast that, that really gives us some perspective. Verses 18 and 19, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He's doing the same thing he did in the previous paragraphs where he sets up, this is what it used to be like and now this is what we have through Christ. Just this back and forth. The present suffering cannot even compare with the coming glory. And we were all about now, right? We can real quick get there. You know, there's this thing about, oh, well, you know, be present. That's a good thing, but in some situations, real quick, we can slide into just being totally self-centered. And Paul says, this stuff we're going through, this world we're living in right now, all the ramifications of, of sin... I mean, it is really overwhelming at times. But it doesn't even compare with what is to come. It's very easy for us to get to woe is me, right? It's never been this hard. No one's ever had to deal with my struggles. Yada, yada, yada. We've all been there. We have to be careful not to slip into that. Quite frankly, as they say, just get over yourself. But that's, that's one of the things of the flesh that plagues us. Paul understands that. It's reality. We know intellectually, as a believer, we, we of course have the, you know, we have what Paul did not have written. I mean, Revelation, it's going to be 30 years before Revelation is written. <laughs> Paul's not going to be around to see it. We know what's coming. It's been written for us. We long for it. But man, we are in it right now. And Paul says, he kind of snaps us back into focus. 
And Paul says here in this moment, listen, the present suffering, it isn't in the same league with what is to come, the coming glory. That ought to thrill us. What is this coming glory? Well, one of the main things he hints at in verse 23, it is the redemption of our bodies. Praise the Lord. Again, this, this frailty, this temporal nature of our body. We all have aches and pains, right? And the longer we go, the more we get, it seems like. Some of you know this story. When I go like this, this pinky curves over here. It won't lay flat. I can make it lay flat, but naturally it just lays over. It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be like this one that just goes straight down. This one doesn't. You know why? Because a bunch of years ago I was preaching Romans chapter 12 and I went like this on an oak pulpit and crushed that knuckle. Not one of my finer moments. It's not my normal thing. There were mitigating circumstances. The pulpit won, the hand lost. Those were back in the days when we still had Sunday night services and everything else. And yeah, I preached Sunday night and went to the doctor Monday. But now it's crooked. I mean, that's a seeming little, little tiny thing. But one day it's going to be fixed. The redeeming of our bodies. Paul write on this same theme in a letter to the believers at Philippi when he's in prison in Rome in the early 60s. John will write a, the same theme as the first century closes. In Philippians 3, Paul says, our, reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In John's first epistle, he writes in 1 John 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And, get this, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Creation, Paul writes in verse 19, waits with eager longing for this revealing. Literally, the uncovering of what is to come. The anticipation is building. With every day, with every year, with every decade, with every century that passes, the anticipation has been building. Creation waits with eager longing. Creation here is that Paul's referring to, it's everything but humans. He's going to bring us into it in a minute, but that, that's what he's talking about. He's looking around as he has traveled 
And of course, by this time, he is well-traveled. This, he writes Romans on his third missionary journey. He is now pointed back, as it were. He's headed back to Jerusalem. We know the end of the story. He'll be arrested, so on and so forth. He'll end up in prison, and ultimately, he'll be martyred. But he's seen a lot in his lifetime. That great prophet we've already talked about this morning, Isaiah, in Isaiah 11. He, like John in, Roman, in Revelation 21, captures the peace and, then tr- and the tranquility that will reign for eternity when all things are made new. We look around at creation and it is beautiful and it is majestic and, and it is awe-inspiring, but it is groaning. And there is friction, and there is struggle, and there is strife. Because of sin, all of creation groans. And Paul says, but this present suffering, it's nothing compared with what's to come, that hope. But he goes on in verses 20 to 23 and he talks about this groaning creation. This is the present that we live in. This is the present state in which we live. This is what it's like. Notice what he says. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. What does that mean? Creation was subjected to this futility. It's not what God intended. This takes us back to Genesis 3, does it not? Man sins. Adam sins. Paul's discussed that in Romans 5 at length. And because of that sin, God comes in and he judges not just Adam and Eve, but because of that sin, he judges creation. And he says, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The creation was subjected To this futility. God never intended for trees and plants to die. He never intended for weeds to grow in flower beds and farmer's fields. He never intended for reptiles to be so revolting. Sorry Tim, they are. But because of sin in this present world, this is the state in which we live. Creation was subjected to this. And he goes on and he says, so because of that we know that the whole creation has been groaning. If it could speak out loud, it literally would look at humans and go, why did you do this to us? Cute little rabbits that hop around your yard were not supposed to be the prey of the hawk.
There weren't supposed to be apex predators and such. But he illustrates here what he's just said and in this intense anguish and suffering that, that's been ongoing. read an article this week recently published by an associate professor down at Southern Seminary actually on this chapter. It was quite encouraging and also somewhat enlightening. He said this, Mitch Shea said this, Paul is connecting the ideas of longing and liberation here in this chapter. We're longing, creation is groaning, we are longing, but liberation is coming. Groans of anguish as well as anticipation. It's as if we look and, and all creation looks with us and it's like we look to the heavens and say, come on already. And yet we wait. see, the coming resurrection of the saints will be the gateway for the restoration of creation to its pre-sin state. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Creation has been growing, groaning. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit. What, he, what he's saying is what's going to happen is that verse 23, the revealing of our bodies, just like Man sinned and this curse entered into the world. When man is ultimately, eternally redeemed, everything goes back and God makes it all new again. And creation waits. And groans. And anticipates. Notice, creation groans, but we too groan. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We do. We know that. Why? Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, Paul helps us to understand why the frustration exists within our hearts and minds as believers. He's referenced this before. We get back into chapter 7, and as well as the production of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That's the contrast to the pool, the pool of the flesh. The old man is very real. And we have these little hints of what is to come, the, produce, the production of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And before we know it, we get pulled back over here. You know, we're trying to have love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and then we get pulled over here because somebody does something or says something not so nice. And it's just this back and forth and back, and we groan and we long. Because we get this little taste of it, but it's not realized yet. That's why, as believers, and as we have as a congregation, as a church family here many times over the last nearly eight years now, together, come in this room, room like it, gravesides scattered around Connecticut countryside. And we remember the life of one we love. But if it's a believer, 
Yes, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope, because we have hope. It's why when we remember, we also turn our gaze heavenward. We think about that loved one who, whose eyes closed here and opened in heaven. And they wouldn't come back if they could because their hope has been made sight. We long for that. We groan for that. David speaks of it. Psalm 38, he says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. That's how we live. Matthew Henry wrote, talking about this passage, he said, quote, there's a general outcry of the whole creation against the sin of man. The stone cries out of the wall. The land cries that the creature that is now thus burdened shall at the time of the restitution of all things be delivered from this bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. They shall no more be subject to vanity and corruption and the other fruits of the curse, but on the contrary, this lower world shall be renewed when there will be new heavens and a new earth. So there is this contrast, this perspective, this, this groaning, what we live in right now. But there is, in fact, a grand hope. We're not stuck there just to groan and moan and wait. There's hope. And it's a glorious hope. It's a promise. He says, and we wait eagerly. For the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So he gives us perspective. He reminds us of the present. And then he unveils again this promise. This promise that had been talked about now for, for several years. I mean, the apostles had heard the promise on the mountain, right? Why do you men of Galilee stand staring up into heaven? The same Jesus that left, he'll come back. Jesus had promised it. The angels confirmed it. That was the message they were taking. And yet, three decades had gone by just about. And they waited. They waited eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Because that's the hope that we have through salvation. You see, not only the redemption of our physical body, but the freedom from all of the ramifications of this fallen world. It's not just about the pain and the struggle every morning, right? It's freedom from the things that intrude in our mind. The pressures that are brought to bear because of our sinful life and sinful choices and sinful world. And he says here, we hope. Verse 24, in this hope, we were saved. 
Now, in this next sentence, in this question, these next two sentences, he just kind of goes, now, now hope is, hope that a scene isn't hope. Like, you, ha- you haven't really seen what's coming. And, and then he asks a rhetorical question for, for who, hopes, who hopes what he sees. I mean, we look around and what we see, not really what we were hoping for. So let's get beyond that. He, again, he's, he's trying, it, it, it's as though he's coming alongside of his, of, of his hearer, his audience, and, and he does this little number. He takes their chin and goes, no, 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 look up here. Hope. Not hope. Hope. For in this we hope, this is a beautiful word. Paul uses this word back in the very beginning of Romans chapter 5. Remember that list? Tribulation, work of patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope makes not ashamed. You see, this hope, this word, when he uses it, there is no uncertainty in this kind of hope. This hope is founded in Christ. That's what he says back in verse 1. And in the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what he's talking about in verse 23. It's why our hearts and our voices soar as we sing. In Christ alone my hope is found. It's why we just about shout Christ our hope in life and death. Hope. Why do we hope? Because the present production of the fruit of the Spirit gives us hope of the harvest that is to come. Those little inklings of fruit that we get in our lives. Again, that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those little little first fruits give us hope that we can't even fully comprehend of what is to come. We think we know love now. We have no idea. We think we know peace now. We have no idea. I remember as a boy visiting my uncle. He was a farmer in New South Jersey. Down on that peninsula right across from the Delaware Memorial Bridge. And I would walk with him in the field. He had a lot of corn. He was a dairy farmer, but he grew a lot of corn for silage and feed and stuff like that and we would often be there in June, July so I mean we're you know before harvest obviously we walk in the field and of course the corn is coming up and occasionally he would reach over to a stalk and pull off an ear strip it back and look what was he doing checking its progress wasn't harvest time yet but there was hope for a good harvest because he's pulling it back he's looking what's the health of these kernels how are these first ears coming in so too we, we have these first fruits and so we hope for the harvest that is yet to come. We glory in our salvation. We glory in our adoption. We eagerly wait our glorification. We hope. The apostles and early Christians clung to the words of Jesus and the angels that he, they were spoken on that mountain. We still cling to it with this confident hope. 
and we wait for it with patience. Paul writes, verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Upomene, patience. It's this cheerful, hopeful endurance that is the fruit of our faith. The same writer I referenced earlier, Ms. Chase, he said, quote, our hope will be fulfilled because God will not fail. Amen? Our hope will be fulfilled because God will not fail. Again, it's in that list from Romans 5. Tribulation works patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope. And so we're waiting with patience. Paul will bring this back again in chapter 15. When he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through patience and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It is why the writer of Hebrews said, let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we wait. But we wait with patience. Do you have this anticipation, this hope, this patience? Is the Holy Spirit confirming this truth in your heart? Or is he bringing conviction? calling you into a relationship with Jesus because you long for something like this. You say, Pastor Sweat, what you've been talking about, it sounds so good. I have no idea how to get it. God's word tells us. It is through Jesus Christ. And if the Holy Spirit this morning is taking this and bringing it to your mind and saying, don't you want that? That's him doing what he said he would do. Calling you into that relationship. This morning, Christian, if, if this encourages your heart, if this, this refreshes your spirit again, that's the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. When the comforters come, he'll bring all things to your remembrance that I said to you and... He'll confirm truth and righteousness and judgment. There's no doubt in my mind that there were people in the first century who heard this that are just like us. And to some, the truth is confirmed. To others, the truth brings conviction, calling them to salvation. Which are you today? Which are you? Oh, my friends, I trust that as we think of this, this present hope that we have of future glory, that we do wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for all that you are. Thank you for the scriptures that ring in our hearts as clearly as they did when they were penned nearly 2,000 years ago because it is truth eternal. Oh, Father, we praise you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The ministry of grace the Holy Spirit has in us. Father, may there this morning be Christians whose hearts have been encouraged, whose eyes have been lifted heavenward. And yes, we groan, we anticipate, we're eager. Father, help us to wait with patience and to serve with faithfulness. Father, if there is one here this morning who longs for this hope, who wonders, could it ever be? May the truth of the gospel, that yes, Jesus Christ died for them, that if they will just confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, they too will be saved. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for this truth. May the Holy Spirit bring it home to our hearts. May we live in the light and the wonder and the glory of it. This present hope for future glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.